0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton and today we are going to talk to Graham Fraser about the journal kept by F.R. Scott and what it tells us about the history of the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism the famous B&B Commission. Graham Fraser is a former journalist who served as Canada's sixth commissioner of official languages between 2006 and 2016. He's also a writer who has published in both official languages of Canada. An officer of the Order of Canada, he's currently associated with the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. The Fate of Canada F.R. Scott's Journal of the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism 1963-1971 to was published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2021. Graham, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: you know the Champlain Society which sponsors this podcast is in the business of editing journals diaries and other original material that can shed a light on Canada's history. Uh, Your book is very much in this tradition so tell us why you concluded that Scott's journal should be published at all and how did you go about the job of editing his journal?
1: Over the years um, I mean I've Always been interested in Scott's work, and um, I guess I first discovered the existence of the journal in reading Sandra Joa's biography of uh, of Frank Scott, and um, went through the uh, the journal in the archives um, for a book that I wrote on on language policy, and uh, and then again um, for a, a lecture at McGill, and I was always very conscious of the fact that Andre Lohondos. Who had also kept a journal. His journal had been published uh, in French and translated into English, and so um, I always thought, well, Loando's journal was published; Scott's should be as well. And so when I finished as uh, my tenure as as Commissioner of Official Languages, I thought, well, this this would be a natural next project to embark on, I naively thought that um, I could uh, um, print out the journal, get it it from the archives, um, uh, modify the lecture I'd given uh, as an introduction and um, have it out um, a year after uh, I'd stepped down as commissioner. there uh, are a number of reasons it took me five years rather than the one year that I uh, I had thought it would take. It turned out to be a, a more complex job than I had uh, than I had figured.
0: Yeah, editing journals of this type is always a very painstaking job, as we know at the Champlain Society. Uh, what we're really interested in today is the sort of the figure of F. R. Scott. Can you give us a thumbnail biography of him? He was a poet, a a law professor, a socialist, a constitutionalist. He also uh, was very paradoxical in some ways. Can you give us a flavor of this person?
1: He was um, I mean he was uh, as you say he was a, uh, uh, a socialist and uh, very much out of step with um, uh, the, with McGill that McGill really would have preferred that he did not was not a public figure on the left um, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s Um but he was also very much a part of the elite. He was the uh, uh, the youngest son of um, um, Anglican minister in, in Quebec City. Uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He'd been at Oxford with Lester Pearson. Um, he. Uh, David Lewis, who worked with him in the CCF and the NDP, talked about his uh, his aloofness and the degree to which he could be condescending to people who uh, who intervened and sometimes cruel in his uh, in his put downs. Um, uh, he was. Um, but he had a wicked sense of humor. Um, Michael Oliver said that uh, you could hear him two rooms away from his laughter at uh, at parties. Um, there was a kind of mythic quality to him. He had taken on Maurice Duplessis, the uh, premier of Quebec, uh, taken to the Supreme Court on the padlock law and on the banning of Lady Chatterley's lover. Um, uh, he was... Um, uh, a, a, of all the, ple- the the principles that he believed in and supported, the pleasure principle was certainly uh, certainly one of them. You have a personal
0: connection uh, to F.R. Scott. Um, did this uh, connection play any role in your decision to publish Scott's journal?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, my my parents jointly owned a summer cottage in North Hatley um, with the Scots, um, which meant that we... Overlapped now and then, um, but because uh, they had it in July and we had it in August, we um, uh, the fact that we were joint owners didn't mean a lot of contact with with the Scots. Um, but I certainly have very vivid memories of him. Um, one point when I was a child and we were there at the same time and had gone gone on a picnic down Lake Massawippi, he was in a canoe paddling and, uh, capsized the canoe. And I thought he'd done it on purpose and said, do it again, Mr. Scott, do it again. Um, and uh, he, um, he told me once that he had, um, Uh, talked to a scientist uh, in Montreal about the experiment that had been done with with rats where um, uh, there was an electric node that went directly to the brain that stimulated pleasure and if they banged on uh, a lever this would send a little electric shock directly to the the pleasure point in the brain and they would bang away and stomp away on this lever until they collapsed and not eat or drink and would continue. So he said that from then on, every time he or then this scientist saw each other at uh, cocktail parties, they would stomp their feet uh, furiously like those those uh, mice in uh, or rats in uh, in the experiment. Um, he was uh, so. I, you know, I was able to pick, and we have um, uh, mutual f- family friends. So uh, I. Uh, uh, collected my fair share of uh, of of Scott's stories because uh, he is someone that um, that people tended to talk about, and uh, he was he was witty, he was erudite, um, and uh, had uh, enormous charm. Um, but that wasn't really why I decided to embark on it. Um, it was um, uh, even though. Um, that cottage, which I now own, um, uh, has some memorabilia from, from that era. It has the beer stein that his law students gave him when he retired from as, as dean. Um, so I've always had a sense of Scott being present in my life, if you like. Um, but it was more that I thought that— um, he had made a very important contribution to the Royal Commission. Um, I, uh, as Commissioner of Official Languages, and before that as somebody who wrote about language policy, always felt that the uh, the Commission played a critical role in laying the groundwork for Canada's language policy. Um, I always had enormous respect for, uh, for Scott. And um, embarking on... The diary. Um, I discovered a degree of of nuance in Scott's thinking about this that I had not originally uh, been aware of.
0: Well, on the uh, this last point about his role in the commission, I note that the commission is colloquially known as Lorando Dutton Commission, not Lorando Scott. Uh, but it seems to me that Scott. Played a pretty critical role, uh, virtually as a, a co-chair at times, but I'd like to know your opinion after going through the journal.
1: Well, I've always always thought that 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 the primary debate, if you like, was between Lohondoo and um, and Scott. Certainly in the first five years, um, but there's a degree to which. Um, uh, uh, history tends to be um, more interested in those people who leave a written record. And Scott and Law in in leaving journals, um, left a record in a way that Davidson-Dunton did not. Um, I'm not sure that had Scott been co-chair, uh, the commission would have been as uh, skilled at reaching a consensus. Um, Scott for all of his strengths was not a consensus builder. Um, whereas both La Rondeau and Dunton were consensus builders. Um, Scott, um, was, uh, uh, logical driven, um, not particularly tolerant of people he disagreed with. Um, and, uh, whereas, uh, and he, in his, um, when, after La Rondeau's death, uh, Scott wrote a tribute to him in Le Devoir in which he explicitly expressed his admiration for how Le was prepared to patiently listen to people with whom he totally and violently disagreed. That was not one of Scott's own characteristics, but I think it was part of the... uh, uh, of the reason that the, the Royal Commission was able to uh, emerge so successfully in its, in its final report. And Dunton doesn't leave a record um, in the same way that Londo and Scott do. But I think that um, uh, Davidson-Dunton was a natural conciliator, and, uh, and I think behind the scenes played an important role in bringing people together. He was also, um, to a degree that Le Rondeau was not, uh, able to round the corners and smooth the wheels in the dealings with the government. Um really felt like a fish out of water in Ottawa. Um, uh, Dunton... Lived in Ottawa, was the uh, uh, president of Carleton University, and was um, very comfortable reassuring, conveying messages back and forth uh, to the government about about the importance of the of the commission being able to um, to continue its mandate as long as it did.
0: Well, just before we return to Scott just tell us a little bit more about the commission itself it ran from 1963 to 1970 what was its mandate what did it accomplish and from my perspective given i was on a royal commission for a year and a half it's all the time we were given why did it take so long for this commission to complete its work
1: well, for one thing, the, the, the mandate was, um, was pretty vast. Um, I mean, the, it was, and I'm quoting here from the mandate, to report on the, upon the situation and practice of bilingualism within all branches and agencies of the federal administration, including crown corporations, and in their communications with the public, and to make recommendations designed to ensure the bilingual and basically bicultural character of the federal administration Two, to report on the role of public and private organizations, including the mass communications media, in promoting bilingualism, better cultural relations, and a more widespread appreciation of the basically bicultural character of the country, and of the subsequent contribution made by the other cultures, and to recommend what should be done to improve that role and having regard to the fact that the constitutional jurisdiction over education is vested in the provinces to discuss with the provincial governments the opportunities available to Canadians to learn the English and French languages and to recommend what could be done to enable Canadians to become bilingual. Now, one of the reasons it went on so long, there were there were three stages, if you like, of the commission hearings. There was the initial stage of listening to... to um, People in public hearings across the country. There was the stage of drawing up the uh, the initial, the first report, which was the most important. That was the one that that laid out the recommendations for an official languages act and the creation of the position of commissioner of official languages. Um, the subsequent reports that uh, dealt with with um, uh, other ethnic groups um, and uh, uh, a variety of of other aspects came later, but to a large extent, the reason it lasted so long was it failed to reach uh, an agreement on. Constitutional recommendations. To that extent, it was kind of a preview of the 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 failure to over over the Meech Lake Accord and um, the constitutional the whole constitutional crisis debates of of um, the late eighties uh, and uh, and early nineties. So, um, and you see those debates playing out in the latter years, and they. They reached a deadlock and, as, as Royce Frith said, finally agreed that they could not agree on constitutional recommendations. So that, that latter part between, um, if you like, 69 and 71 um, was uh, uh, where they were locked in disagreement. And they were locked in disagreement. Also, not, they, There was a consensus that they would not publish the report that uh, had been drafted on mass media um, because they just didn't think it was, it was well enough done.
0: So returning to Scott, I know him as a member of the League for Social Reconstruction. I know him as a CCF activist and one of the key authors of the Regina Manifesto of 1933. To what extent did his socialist views mark him out in the commission, separate him maybe from the other members of the commission, and even more importantly, did his socialist or collectivist uh, leaning shape his views concerning language rights and bilingualism?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, where it emerges most clearly was that he felt that the commission should be speaking out against the the commercialization of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and and uh, the role of, of corporations uh, in Canadian life generally um, uh, in a moving section of... Um, a piece that he wrote called The End of the Affair, um, he expressed real regret that um, the what he saw as the positive, collectivist, communitarian aspect of the Roman Catholic Church, which he had always denounced in the 1930s, um, that it, in in its gradual loss of power in Quebec, that he felt that that collectivist, communitarian sense was being lost as well, and that uh, capitalism was winning. Um, so that marked him uh, aside from the others. Um, uh, Roy Sprith, whom he agreed with on all kinds of other things, uh, owned a private radio station, and so was dead set against the commission um, taking position on on uh, the commercials on the CBC, for example. Um, in terms of uh, language policy, he had always felt that um, the uh, uh, there was there was a protection for. For groups, more protection for groups in the British North America Act than there was for individuals. But that was not really recognized by the um, French speaking members of the Commission. Andre Lorandeau had difficulty understanding exactly where. Uh, Scott was coming from, and and asked Leon Dion, who was a friend of Lalande's and uh, professor at Laval, and also worked for the commission, asked him to do a paper on on Scott's worldview. And uh, uh, Dion said that um, uh, Scott's view, in contrast with Lalande's, that Lalande was collectivist and Pessimistic and that Scott was individualist and optimistic. And I think that was a fundamental misreading of, of Scott's uh, socialism and, and collectivist approach. But where and many Quebec academics still view Scott as um uh, an anti-nationalist, um, partly because of his um, support for Pierre Trudeau, his support for Trudeau during the war, introduction of the War Measures Act. Um, but um, I think that is a uh, a profound misreading of Scott's position. Scott um, uh, did not oppose uh, seeing French Canada or Quebec as a nation. He felt that English Canada not, was not a nation, that it did not, was not have, have contiguous parts, it, it, was, it did not represent a common, common culture. All that bounded English Canada together was language, uh, in his view. And whereas he did recognize that French Canada represented a nation, he just didn't think the boundaries of that nation were the boundaries of the province of Quebec. Uh, he felt it was a nation that, that covered all of French Canada— and this was at a period where um, uh, certainly Le Rondeau and um, uh, many other nationalists in Quebec were redefining French-Canadian nationalism as Quebec nationalism. And Scott, as uh, an English Quebecer, saw this as a threat to the English community.
0: Pushing that further, what was Scott's precise view of the two nations theory, at least as revealed in this journal?
1: He didn't believe that um, in the two-nation theory because he didn't think English Canada was a nation. Um, He thought um, uh, that—and he, at one point, even though he insisted that that, that the— Uh, French-Canadian nation extended beyond the boundaries of Quebec. At times, the the vocabulary would shift within uh, a couple of paragraphs, Um, and uh, he had no problem recognizing that French-Canada or Quebec did have all the characteristics of a nation and could be called a nation, but he didn't think English-Canada could.
0: So what, uh, to what extent was Scott responsible then for the Commission's preliminary report of July 1964? Uh, and at that point, as you point out in the book, uh, the Commission states that Canadians uh, in Canada was passing through the greatest crisis in its history. Scott himself wrote that. What did he mean by crisis?
1: In the introduction of the preliminary report, uh, it has that dramatic phrase, which is probably the the only single phrase from the Royal Commission that anybody who remembers the Royal Commission at all can can remember clearly. That without fully realizing it, Canada is passing through the greatest crisis in its history, and it took quite a while for the commissioners to reach that conclusion. And to decide that they would write that preliminary report, and it was the, a meeting in Quebec City, which was basically dominated by uh, independentist uh, separatists at the at the meeting, and Laurent was shouted down. There was it was it, it was it shook the commissioners in a way that they had not been shaken at any of the previous public meetings, and that I think was a tipping point for them in deciding that, yes, it's a crisis, and yes, we're going to come out with a preliminary report saying so. And uh, what Scott said um, in his note to his fellow commissioners uh, in July 1964 was his description of what the crisis was. In saying there... In saying there's a crisis and a very serious crisis in Canada, we mean that in our opinion, there has occurred a permanent shift of opinion in Quebec towards confederation, resulting in a demand for changes in the basic constitution of a radical kind. And he goes on to identify some of the factors that are at play. The debate in Quebec over education, which was actually a debate over secularism, the question of whether Quebec was the sole bastion of French culture in North America, or whether the whole of Canada was the proper area for the development of that culture. And he concluded, the greatest crisis as we see it is thus a complex one containing many factors. But the fundamental issue is the relationship between the two, nations, or the two parts of the single nation. In other terms, terms, the relationship between the two cultural and linguistic groups, whose study is the purpose of this commission. These are in a critical state and the choices now forced upon us all are critical. What that emerged after going through the whole editing process that went through to produce the report in the preliminary report of 1965, the state of affairs established in 1867 and never seriously challenged is now for the first time being rejected by the French Canadians of Quebec. And so you can see that those three or four paragraphs that Scott laid out in that uh, note to his fellow commissioners was condensed into that single definition of what constituted the crisis.
0: Scott uh, seemed to be in disagreement with Lerondeau periodically, at least based upon what I read in the journal. Um, And at one point... uh, he pointed out the 11 myths perpetuated by Le Rondeau. What were these 11 myths or some of these 11 myths and uh, your sort of uh, reflections on them?
1: Yeah, um had at the commission um, talked about some of the myths that English Canadians had about French Canada and about Quebec. And uh, Scott responded by saying, in effect, hey, wait a second, Let's look at the myths that there are in French Canada about, um, the, about the country. And he went through them. One, the French were the first in Canada everywhere because they settled on the banks of the St. Lawrence. They're supposed to have some priority in British Columbia. They know practically nothing about, of the English exploration and first settlement of other parts of North America. The English rights in Quebec come from the French and are evidence of the greater generosity in the treatment of minorities. Actually, English rights in Quebec come from the English, from the time when they controlled the whole province. Three, the the French are settlers in Quebec, but the English are invaders. Four, the French are a minority everywhere. This leads them to think that their position is precarious and therefore they must become independent. Actually, the French majority in Quebec wields an almost undisputed sovereignty over the vast area of provincial jurisdiction. A corollary of this minority myth is that, being a minority, they're perpetually dominated by the majority and do not control its decisions on any important matter. French are willing to learn English, but the English won't learn French. Actually, the British element in Quebec is more bilingual than the French. Lord Durham was an evil monster. Suggestions of this are found even in Le Rondeau's drafting of Chapter chapter 5. To the French, Durham was a great assimilator. To the English, he's a great decolonizer. And this line was picked up in the preliminary report, and some of the other points are summarized. Quebec pays no attention to responsible government. I picked up also the word Le Rondeau put in priest-ridden and showed that while it is an insulting term from the point of view of Protestant Canada, the fact that Quebec has not a single lay school, college, or university for the French-speaking people, the fact that the place names are predominantly attached to Catholic saints, and the fact that in the Catholic parishes, the parish authorities can use the civil courts to enforce payment of church dues is understandably going to make the Anglo-Saxon people feel that the influence of the priest in the social life of the province is excessive. I might have mentioned the crucifixes in the courtrooms, but didn't. And then he goes on to talk about the constitutional rights, that the French-Canadians are second-class citizen, challenging that uh, that there's nothing in common between the two cultures. The English always assimilate minorities everywhere. The corruption, And finally, that the corruption of the French-spoken in Quebec is due to the proximity of the English, in which he points out that Joël was found first in the Chicoutimi area, where there are very few English. So it was Scott's recounting of is correcting the record and saying that there are misunderstandings on, on both sides of the language barrier. And that, that did reflect itself in the, uh, in, in, in the published version of the Royal Commission's report.
0: So how did, how did Scott and Marondo finally manage to weave their positions together then?
1: It was, I think, quite it was quite extraordinary, and I think it speaks to to um, uh, Laurent-Dau's success as a as a conciliator, um, uh, which was not Scott's natural style. Um, uh, at one point, after one of the meetings, um, uh, Leon Dion said to him that uh, while Everybody was always impressed with Scott's interventions. He somehow never, they never changed their minds after after he spoke. Um, he tended to be polarizing rather than unifying, whereas uh, Laurent-Dau was was um, much gentler, more conciliatory, um, much more effective at at, at building a consensus, um, and they had a great deal of respect for one another. Lohondo and Scott had uh, known each other since the late 1930s. And um, while they had very different political positions in a number of ways, uh, that never had an, uh, an effect on how much they respected each other. And what was
0: Scott's view of Indigenous identities and languages in, in Canada, as well as his uh, view of other, that is, non-English, non-French, and even non-Indigenous ethnicities and languages in the context of the commission, given its name, bicultural, bilingual.
1: That's right. Well, uh, Scott had a very dualistic view of the nature of the country, and um, there were two academics on the commission who um, were—one was of Ukraine, Brunitsky, who was of uh, Ukrainian background, and Wachinsky, who was of uh, Polish background. And Scott kind of tolerated them, um, but but would— dig in his heels, as the other commissioners did, to prevent a broadening of the definition of of official languages. Um, And um, they actually um, wrote a dissenting minority report um, arguing that Ukrainian should be recognized as an official language in Western Canada and Italian as an official language in in Toronto. And this was— not accepted by, the, by either Scott or any of the other commissioners. As far as as they were concerned, Canada was a country of two official languages. That's the way it should remain. Um, Scott's view of indigenous languages was uh, even more dismissive. And he he uh, didn't feel that the commission should be commenting or uh, partly, he said, because they didn't know anything about them. Um, But it's clear that this was a a report that was um, uh, conducted when the aboriginals, the indigenous peoples of Canada had not become nearly as vocal or as visible um, as they did starting in the in the 1970s. Um, And uh, uh, the transformation into the, the uh, National Indian Brotherhood into the Assembly of First Nations was something that happened uh, in the future um, the uh, negotiation of the James Bay Treaty was something that happened uh, in the future they were simply not not aware at one point uh, Scott and Shawnebee Gagnon went up uh, to what was then called Frobisher Bay now the Calloede met some people um uh, came south and really felt that there was not anything useful that that they could say or should say that would be part of the report. There's a paragraph or so at the beginning of the uh, uh, volume one of the uh, uh, of the Royal Commission explaining that they just they didn't address indigenous languages and while they wished them all the best luck in the world, um, that was not part of their mandate and they weren't going to deal with them.
0: In your view, what was the impact of the Royal Commission's final recommendations?
1: Well, I think it's been transformative in, the, in a number of ways. Um, it was the, uh, uh, the Royal Commission that um, uh, led to... The, the Official Languages Act, which was uh, introduced in 1968 and passed in 1969, um, the creation of the Office of the Commissioner of Official Languages. Um, it also, due to the uh, the volume that was uh, uh, written on uh, other ethnic groups, uh, led to the uh, recommendations concerning policy of multiculturalism, which did not include recognizing Non-English, non-French languages as official languages, but nevertheless laid the groundwork for um, for Canada's multiculturalism policy. Um, I think that the degree to which um, the federal government and it and it stimulated the federal government to engage in a massive process of language training, hiring francophones, um, and moving towards a situation where now, by and large, the federal government is is competently able to serve English-speaking and French-speaking Canadians in the language of their choice. So um, not completely, not entirely, not uh, uh, 100%, but to a very significant degree, uh, it is now possible to apply for a passport, to uh, f- fill out your income tax, to get responses from the federal government uh, in, uh, in the official language of your choice, which just simply was not possible before the recommendations of the, uh, 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 official, the, the, the Royal Commission.
0: Well, Graham, I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for asking me.
0: Our guest today was Graham Fraser. We talked about his book, The Fate of Canada, F.R. Scott's Journal of the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism, 1963-1971, to published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on February 1st, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.